Good morning, friends. If you're just visiting with us, uh, if you're new here and you have, I haven't met you, my name is John Wasson. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome everyone back from spring break. If you were lucky enough to leave, and on behalf of all of Austin, say thank you. Uh, <laughs> traffic was amazing this week. Uh, with no South By and spring break, man, I totally understand why everyone's so mad that everyone's moving here. I'm so sorry. Uh, my youngest son, Elliot, uh, is going to turn two years old in, a, in about a month, or actually, when is this? Two weeks. Um, he started doing this thing, this new thing, where he uh, thinks that if he closes his eyes, that the circumstances around him will disappear, uh, or he thinks he will disappear. I don't know which it is. He can barely talk. Um, so when I ask him to pretty much do anything, but mostly when it's like, well, eat your vegetables, um, or let's get ready for bed, or like I said, most anything that he finds disagreeable, he'll just do this thing where he just, he's, wherever he's standing, he just closes his eyes. <laughs> and I know he can still hear me, um, but then like after a few minutes, he'll, he'll like peek, peek an eye out to see like, am I still here? Uh, is he still here? And obviously like, I am still there. I'm still asking you to eat your peas. Uh, and I tell you this very dumb story uh, to, um, to say that this might be the kind of reaction that we have when reading the 16th chapter of Luke's gospel, uh, especially the parable that we're going to encounter today. It's a, uh, it's a fairly difficult parable with some fairly difficult teaching on wealth, uh, on mortality, on judgment, that if we're honest, we would rather just close our eyes to and imagine that it would disappear or we would disappear. We'd probably take either one of those options. Um, it's a parable that's not really all that difficult to understand, um, but it is difficult to kind of see ourselves within. Um, you might have heard David Foster Wallace a few years back, a long time ago actually now it seems, uh, wrote that, that uh, the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. This is that kind of a parable. Uh, it has that kind of quality to it that I do think uh, if you read it, you will experience a kind of freedom, but it's, it will work on you a little bit. Uh, so if there's ever a season, though, I think to read this parable, we are in it, right? Lent is this time that we, uh, that we have to kind of spend uh, an honest reflection before God, um, before, with ourselves. It's a time for us to repent of all the ways that our lives don't don't uh, look like the kingdom of God very much. Uh, and, and, and so this is a good time for us to read this parable. It is a kind of Easter parable, as you'll see, I think, in a minute. Uh, and putting my cards on the table, I will say that, that I do think that Jesus offers us a picture of grace here in this parable, uh, if we can open our eyes to see it. So uh, before we read it, here's just a bit of context. Uh, last week, we explored the parable of, of the shrewd manager. Uh, the good news is this parable is not nearly as weird as that parable uh, was. Um, it, that parable is by far the strangest and uh, most difficult parable that Jesus tells. And as Jill pointed out last week, um, Jesus appears to be making this point about stewardship, that, about the proper use of our wealth and the proper use of our resources, that, that we indeed can faithfully steward uh, this wealth toward kind of just ends. And um, yet Jesus concludes with this warning, this like last editorial comment that uh, one cannot serve both God and, and wealth. And that's kind of how we left it last week. And then uh, 
in between that parable and this parable, this conversation kind of opens up between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees uh, are not too excited with Jesus' last editorial comment. Uh, Luke kind of takes a jab at the Pharisees, tells us that they were lovers of money. And so they respond to that last comment by making fun of Jesus, by ridiculing Jesus, giving him a hard time. And uh, Jesus' response to this is to renew a kind of earlier complaint that he has made against the Pharisees throughout Luke's gospel, which is to say that, uh, accuse them of a kind of spiritual performance, that you are pretending uh, to be more righteous than you are. He says to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. So it's not only greed about which Jesus is going to have something to say here, but uh, about a kind of um, pretentious spiritual performance as well. And uh, as you'll see, I think that this helps understand just a little bit better Jesus' words to us through this parable. One more disclaimer. Um, if, please don't let the preaching get in the way of this parable for you. Uh, parables were meant to be told and then, and then for those to just kind of linger. They're meant to kind of mess with us. So if in any way I distract from the parable, just, just stop listening. That's fine. You got AirPods? Put them in. That's fine. Uh, so let's turn together uh, to it now. And as is my practice, I invite you to just be quiet for uh, just a minute to prepare to hear God's, God's word to you this morning. Uh, as I mentioned last week in this service, moments to be quiet and contemplative before God are, are few and far between in our busy and, and noisy lives. So um, let's be quiet together. And in that space, let's, let's give permission to God to um, open our eyes to the mystery of this parable. Listen now for the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Holy God, uh, we are here today uh, seeking a word that only you can give us. And so we pray as we listen that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us this morning. A word of grace that might transform us, that might change us. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, even though uh, we only find this parable in Luke's gospel, it's, it's not in any of the other gospels. It's the only place we find it in the New Testament. Um, it's not actually unique to the New Testament. Uh, stories of a reversal of fortune after death were very common in the ancient world. And, and a story very much like this can be traced back to uh, an Egyptian uh, folklore. And uh, there are many stories like this found in, throughout the rabbinical tradition, at least seven stories that, that are, are very, very close to this story. And in one of those stories, told by the rabbi, a wealthy woman who dies actually uh, is successful in uh, communicating to her husband uh, this message of repentance. She's not, she's not somehow blocked. Uh, by Father Abraham. And uh, in another story, uh, the riches of a, ta- a tax collector and the, and the lack of riches of a, of a poor teacher of the law are, are successfully kind of reversed as they, as they enter um, into the afterlife. And uh, I tell you this for a, a couple of reasons. I think it's actually very important um, to understanding this parable. And the first being that, that I really don't think that Jesus is using this parable, this story at least, to describe in detail the events surrounding a final judgment. Uh, I don't think that that's, that's what's happening here. Uh, I think there might be other places where uh, that is described, but I don't think that that's the point here. Um, I do think that Jesus is using a familiar story to his Jew- Jewish audience. Uh, uh, this parable that they would have understood, um, it would have been familiar to them, and he's using that, he's augmenting it, tweaking it, to kind of make a point about the moral and spiritual threats that often accompany wealth. I think that's what he's doing. Uh, but secondly, uh, stories like this uh, are found everywhere, right? In Egyptian folklore, throughout the rabbinical tradition, in our New Testament, uh, because these characters are found everywhere, everywhere. Uh, in every time, in every culture, in every place, you will find someone like this rich man, and you will find this poor man. And so this is a personal story for us. This is a story for 2019 in Austin, Texas, uh, here and now. And I assume, uh, I don't think this is, this is uh, all that profound. I assume that the point of this parable is not to end up like the rich man. That seems to be very obvious uh, as a meaning. I think we can agree on that, which is pretty remarkable by itself, right? That a person that we might think, at least on the outside, this person is someone we would recruit to maybe sit on our board. Uh, um, th- that this person is not the hero of a story in which the only other main character is Lazarus whose only companion is dogs. That's remarkable by itself that that story is being told. But such is the the, the kingdom of God about which Jesus is is proclaiming here. Uh, So if Jesus tells this parable to help his audience, and presumably us by extension, uh, see the dangers of becoming like the rich man, to not become like this rich man, a reasonable question would be to ask, what lessons ought we to take from this so that that doesn't happen for us? And uh, I do think that there are a lot of different things, a lot of different directions that you can go with this parable, different angles that you can use. Um, I think that there's at least two lessons here. One, uh, there's a theological lesson here. There's a theological parable. Um, 
there's something in this parable that's asking us to believe. Uh, and there's also a very practical lesson here. There's something here uh, uh, for us to do. And these two things are interrelated. So let's start first with, with the practical. Wealth without generosity will kill your soul. It will ruin your soul. It really will. I don't know how to be any more practical about this. Wealth without generosity will ruin your soul. And um, it might not happen immediately. It might actually feel like death uh, by paper cuts. But eventually, wealth without generosity will so erode your, your, your spirit that it will, it will end in a kind of spiritual death. And the reason for the rich man's fate in this parable, it's not that he's wealthy. Again, Jesus has just told us a parable uh, where a wealthy person may use their gifts, use their resources. It's not what he's critiquing here. The reason for the rich man's fate here is because ultimately he is inhospitable and he is ungenerous. He could have easily shared gifts from his table, food, bread from his table with the poor man. Could have easily clothed him with clothes from his own closet. Jesus says that even the dogs do something. So why doesn't he? Why doesn't the rich man do anything? I think one reason for this uh, is, is that the very nature of his wealth isolates him from the needs of, of Lazarus. Once he's within his own gates, he, um, he can forget about him. He can eat his, his meal at his table and not think about Lazarus, who's hungry outside of his gates. I don't know if you know this uh, or if you're aware of this study that was done in 2017, but there was a, a, a study on income inequality across the U.S. And it showed that uh, not only does Austin rank very highly in terms of income inequality, um, but it also ranks high in income segregation. And this is something we don't talk as much about when we talk about income inequality. Income segregation is essentially that, that people of uh, similar incomes clump together throughout the city. And one consequence of this uh, reality is that it's likely that many of us are isolated. Uh, like the rich man, we are isolated from the needs uh, of, of the poorest neighbors in our own city. And as a result, our capacity for compassion and I also think our opportunity uh, to practice generosity, these things are, are greatly diminished as a result. So before, as we read this, before we rush to judgment with the rich man, and I know I'm not going to get any, any amens on this, we might seriously pause and ask ourselves, how are we living lives isolated from the needs of our poorest neighbors? And as followers of Jesus Christ, thank you, great. Only amen all day. What difference would it make, honestly, as followers of Jesus Christ, what difference would it make for us to uh, attempt to change that in some way? And even as isolated as we might be, which we are, I think, we, we do have opportunities to practice generosity. The, the only, it's not the only way to practice generosity by living uh, a little bit more uh, uh, differently in our city. We, we have practice ways to, to, to practice generosity. We can do this uh, by voting, right? Voting for policies uh, to make use of public funds uh, for people. Uh, we do this through support of our organizations and institutions that help uh, some of the poorest in our city 
And we do this uh, also very practically by giving to individuals who reach out to us personally um, in need. And uh, if you've lived in Austin for like longer than a week, you know that we have a lot of opportunity for folks uh, who, who maybe not on the street, but who are on street corners at stoplights, who fly signs and who ask for, for money uh, and for other resources. We have them on our, on our own corners. Gene uh, and Gary uh, are often uh, on our own corner here at the corner of Mopac in 2222. And I have to admit that uh, this is the hardest practice of generosity for me. Sitting at the, at the stoplight, just trying to you know, catch up on my Twitter feed, looking at Instagram stories, uh, and then someone with a sign is asking me for something. I mean, I mean cynical, but it, it is a hard practice of generosity. Uh, the Pope um, said something a, a few years ago that you might have seen uh, about these encounters. And I actually think that these personal encounters um, hold a lot of power for us to transform us because of how personal they are. They actually are, are spaces where we might be transformed more than any other kind of giving because of how personal they are. But the Pope, uh, a couple years ago, uh, gave us some advice when, it, when, we, when we have these encounters. He said, uh, when you encounter someone who is obviously in need, who is asking you for money, to give them money and not worry about it. Just give it and, and don't worry about it. He said, it's always right if you are able to give to someone who's in need. The sheer simplicity of that is, is striking and difficult, I think, to hear for me. I don't know if I'm the only one in here, but when, uh, when I'm uh, confronted with a, a situation like this, uh, I kind of run through an immediate like uh, miniature benefit assessment program, like uh, trying to check off lists of like, where's this money going to go, and uh, how are they going to spend it, and is this the best way I could give this money? This happens. I know I'm not the only one doing this. Um, and, and, and I think that this advice from the Pope the simplicity of it liberated me from that practice. It is always right to give to someone who's in need, not only for the blessing of that person, but also because in some way it transforms you. It's a practice of generosity. It's convicting words. The Pope went further as if he had to. Um, but he said that, that not only the gift, but the way that we give the gift matters. So not just dropping some money in a, in a bucket or... Giving, giving it away and then driving off immediately. He said, take a minute and pause. Look them in the eyes. Ask their name. If you can, touch their hands. The point is to preserve dignity between you two. Their dignity as well as, as your dignity. That you might not see this person as a social burden or a pathology, a statistic, but as a human being with as much value as you. I guarantee you that uh, this practice will change the way you see people in need. It will change the way you see people in need. And uh, I don't see any way how you, you can't grow in compassion in engaging in a practice like this. So wealth without generosity over time will ruin your soul. It will. So in response to this parable, I, I invite you to just consider your practices of generosity when discerning uh, how God might be leading you to make decisions in your life. One very practical question to ask yourself is, which path would make me most generous? Which path would make me most generous? And while this parable is filled with, with practical things that we can do, um, practical wisdom, 
It is also at its core a very uh, dense theological parable. It is an Easter parable. And the theological lesson, I think, from this parable, what this parable asks us to believe is that the way of the cross is the way to resurrection. The way of the cross is the way to resurrection. Recall Jesus' complaint to the Pharisees, that they are spiritual performers, that they are pretending in some way. Theologically, the rich man uh, is, is a perfect portrait of performance and self-reliance, while Lazarus portrays complete and utter dependence on mercy, mercy from others, mercy from God. And of the two characters in this story, Lazarus is the only one, it seems, who is in a position to accept his death and is therefore resurrected to new life. The rich man who is, who is so used to power and status and success You catch this? He's so oblivious to his own death that he continues to act as if he were still in charge. He's telling Abraham, uh, send Lazarus to me. And, um, well, if you can't send him to me, send him to my brothers. He's so oblivious to his death that he continues to act as if he were in charge. And I, I I don't think this means that we should all try to imitate Lazarus, that we should go seeking misery in all of its company. I think if you live long enough, you will know that misery finds all of us. Somehow. And the reason that we marked our heads with a cross of ash three weeks ago was to remember that inevitably death will come for all of us. The grace, the grace of this parable is that Jesus came precisely to raise the dead. He came precisely to raise the dead. The way of the cross is the way to resurrection. In his commentary on this parable, um, Father Robert uh, Capone, an Episcopal priest, um, observed that death is all we can now know of the resurrection. Death is all we can now know of the resurrection. The rest is faith. The rest is faith. And I think that this is precisely what we are left with at the end of this parable. There isn't really much closure to it. But the point of Abraham's refusal to send Lazarus to his brothers is that the way of the cross is only traveled by faith, not by sight. So it wouldn't do them any good, even if Lazarus were to go and tell them the truth. They would have to still have faith for themselves. And like those brothers, we too must have faith. To believe Jesus' words to us in this parable, therefore, I think means turning away from ourselves, turning away from our own self-reliance, turning away from our own achievement, turning away from our own righteousness to the ways that we justify ourselves, and turning toward the one who, though died, now lives. And because he lives, because Christ lives, like Lazarus, we might live too. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.